Father, we thank you that you have prepared for us such things that are beyond our comprehension. May we, even if we cannot grasp them, be grasped by them today and carried forward into a world that will be made new. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. What I see, we want everything we do to be intentional. We want the liturgy to be intentional, the preaching to be intentional, but also sometimes we have to issue the occasional intentional apology. And today I have one of those apologies to make. Last week in this service, I didn't do it in the first service, just in the second, I made an off-the-cuff comment about sermon feedback. Some of you may remember this. And I said sermon feedback that was just agreement with what was said was worthless. I'm so sorry. That was not the right way to say it. What I, what I meant to say was that there is a kind of sermon feedback that becomes mutual admiration between the congregation and the preacher, right? Where the preacher just starts saying all the things that the people in the pews think and then the people on the pews pat him on the back for it and, and, and we just become sort of an echo chamber. But the gospel should make us uncomfortable sometimes. The gospel should change us, should mess with us. So what I was trying to say was good sermon feedback is a reflection of how we met Christ in the word preached, how he messed with us, not just how our own opinions were confirmed. Um, But I didn't say that. So please forgive me and thank you for your graciousness. Thank you. Thank you. It is a danger of the vocation. With many words comes sin sometimes. That intentionality extends even to the songs here at IEC. We sing a whole lot of songs here at IEC. I was talking to Daniel the other day, and he told me that last year we sang 123 different songs in worship. Modern praise worship, hymns, praise choruses, all kinds of stuff. The team does an incredible job with being intentional about what songs we sing, where they fit in the service, where they go in the church year. Um, But also the words, also the lyrics. Because every now and again, you'll be singing along, and and perhaps you'll notice that there's a word that's been changed. For example, old hymn, How Great Thou Art, many people in here love it. You might recognize this line from it. When Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart. But at IAC, we don't sing it that way. We sing it, when Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and heal this world, what joy shall fill my heart. Or in rejoice the Lord is king, instead of saying our Lord and judge shall come and take his servants up to their eternal home, we say our Lord and judge shall come and make all things new for our eternal home. It's a subtle difference, but it's a real one. We, we make that change for the same reason that some songs will never crack that 123 song rotation, like I'll Fly Away. Great song. It's not going to make the rotation We make these changes, we omit these songs for a very intentional reason. We're trying not to be Gnostics. Gnostic, G-N-O-S-T-I-C. Gnosticism was a constellation of heresies that was running through both Judaism and Christianity around the earliest centuries of the church. Now, there were lots of pieces to Gnosticism, but the one that concerns us today is that Gnostics believe spirit was better than matter. Even that matter was in itself evil or less than. Which is, of course, not a great fit for the Christian story. 
of a God who creates matter as good and then becomes incarnate in human flesh. But bless their hearts in the southern sense. Those Gnostics tried and spawned heresies all over the place. Heresies like the God who created all things was different from Jesus' father because a God who created all things couldn't actually be a fully good God. It showed up in heresies that said Jesus only appeared to be human, that he was actually just God in human disguise, not truly incarnate in human nature. But one of the, the, the kind of overflows from this that, that sticks with us today, a Gnostic impulse that still kind of hounds us, is in our typical beliefs, at least the popular set of beliefs about the world to come. Because there is a world to come. This is not all there is. The resurrected Jesus is returning in bodily form at the end of the age to do something. The question is, what is that something? To take us home to the heavenly places, to help our spirits fly away to glory, or to make this world, this cosmos, this universe, these bodies new again? A lot actually depends on that answer. Now, we need to be clear that there will be lots of discontinuities between life as we know it now and life as it will be then, right? Because then there will be no more suffering, no more evil, no more death, no more sadness, no more tears. Some of our most compelling music about the world to come comes from cultures, peoples who have been enslaved and oppressed, who have suffered, which makes sense because they're going to emphasize the discontinuities, Right, if your life is absolutely hellish here, then of course you're eager to move on to the world to come. Of course, it's going to make sense to talk about how different that world will be. But we can also overemphasize the discontinuities. Right, because the discontinuity does not seem to stretch from a world of earth to a world of spiritual disembodied heaven as the destiny of all things as the end we're all heading towards. If scripture has been moving from beginning to end toward the union of heaven and earth, toward the marriage of dust and divinity, if we can track the story of the scriptures like we did last week, right? As the invasion of the kingdom of coming on earth as it is in heaven, as temple leading to incarnation, leading to spirit filling the visible, tangible church, then it doesn't make sense to reverse that story at the last minute and send us all into a purely spiritual existence. That's why scripture doesn't talk like that. It talks about a new heavens and a new earth. Now we see this in several places. Isaiah 65, which we read earlier, is one of the classic places in the, in the Hebrew scriptures. But we see it in the New Testament, most clearly in Revelation 21 and 22. Right? So if you have your scriptures, I encourage you to open uh, to those chapters. These are crowning chapters of the Bible that draw the story to a close, but also bring in a lot of themes from the previous uh, pieces of the story, specifically kind of reminding us of the Garden of Eden. So we're going to start reading here again in verse 1 of Revelation 21 and unpack this. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Notice there's a discontinuity here. The first heaven and first earth have passed away, but also a continuity. They're replaced by something of the same basic type, a heaven and an earth. 
Now, there's also a note about the sea here. Quick note for the beach lovers out there, of which I am not one. I would be fine if there were no sea, but some of you would not. We, we don't know if the new heavens and new earth like, won't actually have an ocean. The sea was a literary symbol of chaos and danger. What John is saying, and there being no sea, is that this new world is going to be safe and secure and steady. And let's keep going to verse 2. He says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. These verses are like uh, summing up so much of the biblical story. We could talk about they will be his people, he will be their God. That comes up again and again and again. Scripture begins with the wedding of Adam and Eve and ends with the wedding of God and humanity. But there's a couple interesting things about this wedding that I want to point out. First, that God's dwelling place is now among the people, not the other way around. What's the direction of movement here? The people are not going up to dwell with God. He is now going down to dwell with them. But that dwelling place, this new temple, is not a garden like Eden. It's a city, which has a garden in the midst of it, we later find out. But think like Colorado Springs surrounding Palmer Park or or New York with Central Park. That's the picture here. But who makes cities? People do. Human culture, human labor, human planning makes cities. What's coming down from heaven to earth is a city, but given as the very gift of God. It's actually kind of a confusing picture on the surface of it. But what seems to be happening is that God is gathering up the work of humanity, the labor of our hands in his creation, because he's the one that gave us that work to do in the first place. And he's purified it, made it new, and given it back as gift. He's replaced the old broken creation with a new creation where he himself will dwell with us face to face in this intimate, redeeming presence that we've always longed for, always wanted. But it's a creation that includes the things we've made of the world. That includes somehow our contributions of working and keeping the commandment he gave us in the beginning. The rest of the chapter tells this same story in some different ways, and it uses a lot of symbolism to do so. Uh, Revelation 21, later on, verses 19 through 21, it lists 12 jewels which cover the city. And you read it and you're like, oh, okay, it's going to be really pretty. But like, where did jewels first show up in the scriptural story? In the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 2, it talks about three jewels that are present in the garden. But here, at the end of the story, there are 12. See, this is not an escape from the created world where we've got like no jewels or a return to Eden. This is a new creation that somehow includes the working and keeping that we have done. We, We discovered more jewels that were there all along, all along the way. And now they're on the surface plane for all to see. It's a fuller and richer world than the world we even know now. It says in verse 24 that the nations will walk by the light of the glory of God. Notice there's still going to be multiple nations 
language and cultural distinctions are not going to be erased but preserved and contribute to the beauty and unity of the whole. It also says that the kings of the earth are going to bring their splendor into that great city, which is actually an amazing thought because it's suggesting that the great treasures of civilization, right, the works that we have done that reflect something of the beauty and glory of the creator, like maybe Beethoven's fifth and Michelangelo's David, um, and and slave spirituals, and and my wife Sarah's chocolate chip cookies, (laughs) and your grandmother's salsa recipe. They're going to be welcomed in there. They're going to be offered as worship to the God who gave us the ability to make such things. But not only will that creation be be richer than the one we know, in another sense, it it will be, maybe you could say, thinner, less opaque to the presence of God. One of the the challenges of this world is we can get so lost in creation that we don't see the Creator through it. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. It says in verse 21 of Revelation 21 that the streets are made of gold, kind of a classic image, but not gold like we think of gold, transparent gold. What's that getting at? It means that creation was doing what it was meant to do. It means that it's once again transparent to the creator. We can see the creator through the creation. The symbolism of Revelation is is pointing us to this. Verses 9 through 18 of Revelation 21. John tells us the city is this perfect cube, right? Kind of a weird image. You're like, is this Borg? How is this working? That's a Star Trek joke, sorry. But what else in Scripture is a perfect cube? The most holy place of the temple, where God's presence dwelt on earth, where the first steps of that invasion of heaven to earth came. What it's saying is that now all of creation will be a most holy place. All of creation will be the place where God's presence is dwelling in fullness. Creation is now doing what it was meant to do. It's revealing the creator, not getting in the way of seeing the creator. The picture Revelation is painting is not that we escape from this world, but that we escape the corruption of the world. That God actually takes all that we have made, all that we have discovered, and he purifies it. He perfects it. And he gives it back to us as a new temple, a place for he and us to be at home together in glory beyond our imagining. Now this raises tons of fun questions that we do not have enough information to answer. But maybe it gives us some hints. Will we work in the new creation? I think so. But without the curse, it it might not feel like work. Will we learn and grow in the new creation? I think so for sure, because we're still going to be finite beings in this world. There are going to be tons of stuff to learn and, and and to inhabit and to be present to, tons more than just playing on harps on the clouds. Now, if you want to do that, if you want to play on harps on clouds, I think that's going to be an option. But it's not going to be like the only option. Another question, will individual aspects of this creation transfer over to the new creation? Like, will this field or, or this mountain or this animal or this pet? In other words, like, will all dogs go to heaven? 
I don't know that we can confidently say all, or that is, <laughs> you could take that how you will. I don't know that we can say a specific dog or cat or whatever will be in the new creation because it's, it's not clear whether they have souls in the same way. But I think we can confidently say that there will be animals there because they are part of God's good creation and that creation will be made new. Maybe not carnivorous. Maybe we won't have to have them on leashes, but we don't know. One thing we do know is what we'll be like. We won't be disembodied spirits. We won't be souls finally free of this burden of the flesh. We will have bodies. Physical, tangible bodies like Jesus' resurrection body. Bodies that can see and feel and touch and eat. It does seem that immediately after we die, our spirits go to the heavenly realm. There is a promise of of life after death in the presence of God uh, by our spirits. Jesus told the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. But the scriptures put the emphasis on a different part of the story. Not life after death, but life after life after death. Life in a resurrected, physical, tangible body filled with the glory of God. Now, 1 Corinthians 15, which we didn't get to read this morning because we already had another New Testament reading, is the most extended treatment on this in Scripture, and it's quite thorough. And I want to read just a few verses to kind of walk through and emphasize what we can expect and and to point out how Scripture talks about this, because the way Scripture talks about it can sometimes tip us back into a Gnostic mind frame. I'm going to begin reading at verse 50 of 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Now, if you stop there, you're like, okay, that just like went back against everything you said, right? But we've got to read it more deeply and we've got to keep reading. Several times in this chapter, it refers to like earthly versus heavenly bodies, natural versus spiritual bodies, or it says that flesh and blood cannot inherit eternal life. But what Paul is talking about is the merely earthly, the merely natural, the merely flesh and blood. If something is merely earthly, it still needs to be filled with heaven. It is not yet ready. If something in creation is merely natural, it still needs to be united with the supernatural because that's where things are heading. He he specifies this just a few verses on. Uh, Listen to the language he uses. Verse 51 of 1 Corinthians 15. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, a.k.a. die, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we, who are still living, will all be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. He's not talking about the moment we die. He's talking about Jesus' return. Many will have already died. Some will still be alive. And, and, And this flesh and blood will not fade away, will not be replaced. It will be clothed with divine life. You see that language? It'll be covered, wrapped up with divine glory. We're not gonna escape our bodies. We're gonna get new clothed resurrection bodies. We're gonna get matter covered with divine life, fit for a world made new. 
Now, this is why, historically, the Christian practice surrounding death has been the burial of a whole body. Creation, the cremation has become much more commonplace, but cremation uh, really has origins as an Eastern practice that emerged out of theologies of the spirit being more important than dead matter. In other words, kind of Gnostic sort of beliefs. Burying a body was meant to be a defiant practice of hope for the Christian, a hope that not only will our spirits be made right again, but also our skin and bones. Now, of course, God can restore ashes or bones. It makes no difference to him. Whatever practice we use, resurrection is coming. But whatever practice we use, we need to remember that our destiny is not getting rid of all this. It's seeing all this made new in a world made new. Now, you may think all that is quite interesting, quite brain-bending, but, like, who cares? (laughs) What's the practical? What's the relevant? What's the meaning in this? Friends, what drives us in the suffering? What drives us in the difficulty? What keeps us putting one foot in front of the other when things get hard is hope. Not just the wishful thinking kind of hope. Like, I hope the preacher's done soon. (laughs) That hope wears out over time. (laughs) Hope is the confidence that we are headed towards something worth heading towards. There's a future reality to it, but there is also a present strength. There's a present strength that leans on a future glory. And your hope is bigger and richer and thicker than you think it is. A lot of times, we content ourselves with a hope that is less than full hope. We actually give way to a certain amount of despair. And we say, you can come this far, despair. When our hope is merely escaping this world, we've given place to that despair. Because what happens is our hope comes in the canceling of the negatives, of the wiping away of the heartaches, Our hope becomes just that the bad things stop. And man, will it be great when the bad things stop. But our hope is bigger than that. Our hope is not just that the pain will be poured out, but that glory will pour in. Our hope is not just that the tears will cease, but that feasting will come. And that actually changes all kinds of things about the way we live now. For one, it actually deepens our grief, which might not seem like a good thing. But Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And to the extent that we cut off the grief, we also cut off our comfort. I've seen So many times, I've done it before. When we're in the midst of pain, Christians try to use future glory to deaden the grief that we feel. To explain it away, to try to use future hope to anesthetize ourselves to to the horrible emotions we're feeling in the present. We we lose something created that was valuable to us and we say, ah, you know, like, it's all going to burn anyway. I shouldn't care about it so much. That was part of the creation that God loves. And it's okay that you loved it too. 
We lose someone and we say, well, you know, they're, they're home now. And yes, there is something glorious about being in the presence of God as spirits. The suffering has ended. There is joy and glory yet, but they are not home. They are not home yet. Home is our soul in a created body, in a created world, shot through with the glory of God face to face. When we lose our life here, whether it's been a really long journey or a far too short one, maybe, we, maybe they never even saw the light of day. We lose something precious. And our emotions are leading us to recognize how precious that loss was. When our life is diminished here through injury or age or disability, we've lost something real, something we were meant to have, something that is worth grieving. So it deepens our grief, but at the same time, it deepens our expectancy. Because if our destiny is just escaping this world, escaping these bodies, then salvation is not complete. It is not total. Death has still won a partial victory. If Jesus' ghost had come out and not his resurrection body, the grave would have won. It would have inflicted permanent losses. But listen to 1 Corinthians 15 again, this time verse 54. Remember, it's talking about that future day of resurrection. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? It is on that day, our hope in that resurrected world, in that new creation, that what was lost will be fully found, not just a piece of it. That what was empty will be fully filled. Our hope is that this is not our only chance for life as it was meant to be. But it's just the preface to a much grander, greater story. That changes our posture towards suffering and, and prayer in the midst of suffering. Because it means that it is not a matter of if God will heal our bodies, minds, and spirits. It's a matter of when. We have to stop praying as if it's an if. We often pray as if God has to make this choice of whether to heal us from cancer or injury or this or that or the other thing. We talk uh, as if in some cases the cancer wins. The cancer never wins. The choice is not if he will heal. The choice is simply when he will heal. That suffering may be the birth pangs to new life here or it may be the birth pangs to new life there, but it is the birth pangs towards new life. The scars we bear from that might still be evident in the next world, just as Jesus' nail scars were, but there they will be tokens of victory, not defeat. That is promised to us and we can cling to it. That hope changes our posture towards working. Right? Because our hope is not that we get some like celestial retirement. Our hope is not that we get to stop working. But that the work we do then will be joyous and the work we do now in the midst of the thorns and thistles will still matter then. See, the blood and the sweat that you pour into physical things, tangible spaces will not be wasted. It will be caught up in the creation made new. You will see that salsa on the other side. <laughs> but also, 
you will see the work you do to alleviate poverty. You will see the work you do to care for creation. You will see the work that you do to give a cup of cold water, to bind up broken bodies and hearts and minds, even if they fall apart later on the other side. That work is going to be carried forward in ways that you can't yet understand, that none of us can. I'm struck to the end of 1 Corinthians 15, that that great chapter on the resurrection. Paul ends it by saying, therefore, on the back of all that we know about this resurrection that is to come, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. How do we know it's not going to be in vain? Because of the resurrection of all things. It will not be in vain because there is a continuity between here and there. You'll see that all those hours clocked, all those years logged were not just for a paycheck. Uh, They were not just to open a door to evangelism, although it can be that, and that is a gloriously good thing. It's not wasted if it didn't bear the fruit you hoped or after you stepped out of it, somebody else came along and screwed it up. That work had value in and of itself, and that value will be gathered up by the Creator, carried forward, and you will see it again. Now, I suspect that when we get there, we're going to wonder at that. But that actually won't be the most wondrous thing. Because when we get to that world, I think what we'll notice the most is that fully and finally Christ is reigning in transforming power and we will see him face to face. That phrase, face to face, is a beautiful one because it requires two faces. His resurrected face to our resurrected face. His resurrected eyes to our resurrected eyes. And they will look in one another. And whatever questions we have, they will either be answered or we will realize they don't need to be answered like we thought they did. Listen to, listen to Revelation 22, verse 3. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. One day, we will be face to face with the one who made us and the shining glory of his face will reflect off our created face. Our foreheads are going to reflect the radiance. Because what seems to block our view now will be transparent. The curtain that separates heaven and earth will be lifted. And all shall be well. And all shall be well. And all manner of things shall be well. Because we will be there with him. In the midst of these fears, in the midst of these doubts and anxieties 
and griefs which feel like they will always be with us. In the midst of those moments where we feel like, I cannot grasp this. May it grasp us and carry us with him into the world made new. Let's pray. Jesus, I confess, and I doubt I am the only one who needs to confess this, that that I have made bargains with despair, that I have given up on the fullness of hope. Holy Spirit, would you come and pour your hope into us, pour your faith into us, pour wonder into us, that would keep us from settling for something less than what you have promised. May we even now begin to live in such a way that we trust that this world made new, that this us made new is coming. And that we will see you. And it will be okay. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray these things with so much expectancy and in need of so much help. Amen.